in a wonderful, almost obscure little book entitled The Divine Intruder. Author James Edwards referencing the appearance of God to Abraham in Genesis 18 points us to an amazing insight. Let me read uh, what he wrote. If you're familiar with uh, Genesis 18 at all, you'll recognize this. God's appearance in the form of three strangers raises the curtain on the greatest act of the divine drama. The incarnation or enfleshment of God in human form. The act will reach its climax in Jesus of Nazareth, but from the outset of the biblical record, there are hints or foreshadows of it. From time to time, we're told that the director, capital D, steps onto the stage himself, although seldom in a leading role. More typically, it is quite an insignificant part. Here, in Genesis 18, three unnamed strangers, much later, a carpenter from Galilee, God incognito, God in disguise, is one of the recurrent surprises and mysteries of the biblical faith. At age 51, well after he had become a renowned novelist, Leo Tolstoy was converted to a simple, practical form of Christianity. Now, following his conversion, Tolstoy plumbed the essence of the teachings of Jesus in a number of short stories. One of the best known is called What Men Live By. It's a story of a hard luck Russian couple who, quite against their will, take a naked stranger into their primitive dwelling in the dead of winter as a last resort against his freezing death. And the money the husband Semyon earns as a cobbler scarcely provides for their own needs, no matter how sparing his wife Matriona is. Another mouth to feed is the last thing that that family needs. Surprisingly, however, the circumstances of the couple begin to change, and the stranger becomes Semyon's apprentice. And the fame of the new apprentice spreads quickly throughout the land, as people come from great distances to have shoes and boots made by him. Indeed, the stranger brings more than prosperity to the impoverished dwelling. What began as a reluctant duty on the part of the couple to save a man from freezing to death becomes to them a blessing. They receive more from the stranger than they could have possibly given to him. They have learned what men live by, unquote, not material goods, but by the love of God. Suddenly a flash fills the room and, like Abraham, Semyon sees the stranger is not a mere mortal after all. The one whom he and Matriona, his wife, have taken in and clothed and fed is in fact an angel from God. Here's an amazing truth that we should do well to etch into our minds. God is often present when he is least recognized. 
Abraham, Sarah, and the three strangers are powerful examples of that in Genesis 18. Again, Edwards paints the picture. He says, within a very ordinary place, something very extraordinary happened. God broke into their resignation and disillusionment with an unsolicited overture of promise and hope. That is one of God's greatest and most common gifts. The gift of hope to keep us in the game, to return us to our places, not as the same people we were before, but awake, alive to God's transforming presence in our midst. Now there is likely no better characterization of God breaking into a life so unexpectedly and astonishingly abrupt than in the case of Mary of Nazareth, the mother of Jesus. The difficulty for you and I, you and me, lies in relating to her character. Now let me explain that for a minute. We can relate to the skepticism and the reluctance of Old Testament Sarah and Abraham because in them we catch a glimpse of our own struggles. And if there is hope and comfort for them, maybe there is for us as well. But their quirks and compromises, reflections of our own shortcomings, are not present in this biblical portrait of Mary, however. As one man has said, her trusting receptivity of God's will puts her in an entirely different league from most mortals who struggle with the elements of faith. Yet the irony is that she, among all the women of Scripture, is the most unlikely to have responded to the call of God with such humble submission. The ironies of Mary's call from a human perspective would be shocking if not for our own familiarity with it as part of the Christmas story. Am I right? Now, I hadn't planned on sharing this message on Mary today at all. But as a friend and I talked over breakfast last week about how important it is for us to understand just how surprising and how earth-shattering God's visit was for the people of the original Christmas narrative and how eternally significant their responses proved to be, I decided that maybe I should speak on Mary. Their reactions to the events they encountered so uncharacteristic of our current culture are nothing short of astounding to me, especially Mary's. And her prophetic song of worship during her visit with her cousin Elizabeth unveils the deep-seated joy that filled her soul even in the throes of being a virgin now found to be with child. Unheard of. And that is fitting on this third Sunday of Advent. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 39 to 56. Okay? I'm going to give you the greater context in this. I was just going to read 46 to 50, but I want to give you the whole context. Beginning at verse 39. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now here it is. Known as the Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. And he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Now, our 21st century view of these biblical characters are kind of tainted within our culture, aren't they? And it's very difficult to imagine the actual situation here, put ourselves in the place of it. When we think of them being turned away at the end, for example, Mary and Joseph, what do you think of? Now, we think of a Super 8 or a Motel 6 pops into our mind, right? When we try to actually picture Mary and Joseph, we think of two mature adults, newlyweds, traveling by donkey with a romantic golden starlit sky behind them, kind of like the banner going up the stairs over there that we have hanging. Let me tell you, for a woman in her latter days of pregnancy, a cross-country donkey ride and romantic evening with her husband are not phrases that should be used in the same sentence, okay? Amen. The, <laughs> the truth is that when God broke into these two young people's lives, the announcement of this pregnancy was neither immediately welcomed nor romantic by any stretch of the imagination. Philip Yancey writes in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he said, Christmas art depicts Jesus' family as icons stamped in gold foil with a calm Mary receiving the tidings of the Annunciation as kind of a benediction. But that is not at all how Luke tells the story. Mary was greatly troubled and afraid at the angel's appearance. And when the angel pronounced the sublime words about the Son of the Most High, whose kingdom will never end, Mary had something far more mundane on her mind. She's thinking, but I'm a virgin. Now in a society, watch this now, in a society where approximately 68% of firstborn children among teenage women have been conceived outside of marriage in the United States every single year, Mary's dilemma has lost some of its scandalous force, hasn't it? But in the first century Jewish community, the words spoken by Gabriel could not have been welcome news to her. 
As we saw last time, the Jewish law regarded, regarding a betrothed woman who found herself pregnant was viewed as an adulteress and subject to death by stoning. Now the point is we don't really relate to this situation or the characters at all. Yet these people were real and they were scared. And they were curious as to what God was up to. And we wonder the same things when God breaks into our lives unexpectedly, don't we? God, what are you up to? What in the world are you doing in this situation? How could this possibly result in anything good? I think we can learn a great deal through their responses, and specifically Mary's response here. Luke chapter 1, back up to verse 26 now, and follow along with me as I read a few more verses. Now in the sixth month, an angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I fear that as a reaction to the Roman Catholic Church's overemphasis on the person of Mary, we Protestants, and more pointedly, we Baptists, have committed an equal injustice, having relegated her to the sidelines. What audacity. She was, after all, the mother of Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. She carried him in her abdomen, growing, as did the whispers and the stares, unable to be hidden until a child emerged to change every day of the rest of her life. She bore him. She suffered the pains of birthing him and raising him and burying him. She was continually astonished by what he brought into her life from the diaper to the shroud. And yet in the face of it all, she was humbly submissive, accepting of what God was accomplishing every step of the way. 
And though she had not planned nor anticipated this unlikely turn of events in her life, the Virgin Mary, knowing the repercussions that would ensue, replied in these words, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That blows my mind. Does it blow your mind? See, often a work of God comes with two edges, double-edged sword, great joy and great pain. Right? You experience that? And in that matter of fact response, writes Yancey, Philip Yancey again, Mary embraced both of those things. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms. Let me say that again. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his terms, regardless of what the personal cost was to her. Think about that. You see, I can learn a great deal from Mary's response, can't you? I need to understand how to make that response my response when God breaks into my life with things. And maybe you do too. Coming into the scene here, there are a number of things about Mary that are important to remember. First of all, she was a virgin. That fact is mentioned three times, by the way, in the text. Number two, she was engaged to Joseph of the house of David. We talked about that last week when I uh, unpacked Joseph's reaction. That betrothal was a legal binding. It was as if they were married. However, intercourse was not permitted. Only death or divorce could sever that relationship. In other words, in the presence of many witnesses, she was promised to Joseph. And number three, she was from Nazareth. Okay. Nazareth, a rural town not very highly regarded, by the way. Its insignificance is underscored by its obscurity in Jewish tradition. The Old Testament Josephus, the Midrash, and the Talmud are completely silent about its existence. How about that? Rural is synonymous with powerlessness, isn't it? usually in our minds. Being rural means to be divorced from the importance and devoid of, of influence. Those of us who reside in rural America can appreciate Mary's milieu, can't we? We're reminded day in and day out that history, change, and the future happen everywhere else, not in rural towns. Yet God did not invade the religious cultural or political centers of Jerusalem, Rome, or Greece, did he? He didn't. No, not with this scandalous message of eternal significance. He did not invade them. He infuses himself rather into the womb of a teenage girl in a forgotten rural town. In fact, the birth announcement of the long-awaited Jewish Messiah comes not in the land of the Jews at all but in Galilee of the Gentiles, as Matthew 4.15 states. Galilee of the Gentiles. Notice that. It would be hard to find another historical figure so marginal by temporal standards, yet so honored by eternal standards. Mary was not in any sense anything 
out of the ordinary. That is until verse 28 happened. Look at verse 28 again. And coming in, this angel said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And after verse 28, God bursts into Mary's life and changes it forever. And it changes ours forever as well. After verse 28, we see Mary as anything but ordinary. Number one, she was visited by an angel. That's not very ordinary, is it? And given a message from the Lord in a time, by the way, if you recall, when the prophets had been stone cold silent for 400 years. Number two, she was highly favored by God, it says here. The distinct object of his grace, unmerited in any way. We're not told, for instance, that Mary was righteous and lived a blameless life, as we are, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. Or Joseph, he was called righteous, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, as we saw last week. No, her highly favored status is solely the result of God's choosing and wrapped in the mystery of God's amazing grace, isn't it? James Edwards again writes, he said, the angel addresses Mary by name. She is not the object of a divine form letter or heavenly telemarketing. She is for God a unique person and it is to her as a person, not simply to her situation, that God speaks. The reasons for grace are profound and they're inexhaustible. Why God chooses Mary, you and I will never know. We do not know, but that she is favored, we cannot deny because it's right here in Scripture. This observation, as simple as it is profound, is one of the sterling truths of the Bible that God is for us. Amen? God is for us. If you want to know more about that, read Romans chapter 8, and especially verse 31. God is for us, not angry with us, not waiting to get even with us, not judging us, and above all, not oblivious or indifferent to us. God is for us a simple prepositional phrase that is the blueprint of salvation, by the way. Mary's the first participant in the divine human conversation to take that prepositional phrase at face value. It changed not only her life, but all of history, and it can do something similar to and through you as well. Mary was, for all intents and purposes, just like you and me. And the truth is, she could hardly have been more plain. She could have come right out of Fayette. Mary was a normal person with a not-so-normal response to God. Humble submission in the face of God's astonishing divine intrusion. And so looking at the pattern of how she responds, maybe we can figure it out for ourselves as to what we're supposed to do. So the first thing we, we see in this text in verses 29 to 33 is that humbly submitting to God's unexpected intrusions, it begins by contemplating his astonishing word. Contemplating God's word. Again, verse 29, 
but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation it was. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Verse 29 says that Mary was greatly troubled at this statement, which literally means she was thoroughly and completely confused. Okay? That's the understatement of the year, right? Gabriel's word completely disrupts her world, upends everything. It's anything but welcome. It comes not as a word of comfort or consolation, but rather as frightening and disturbing. And how did she respond? By pondering what this revelation meant. She literally tossed it around and around in her mind. That's what the word pondering means in this text. Now, granted, not many of us can testify to hearing angel voices right now, right? But we are hearing God's word, aren't we? On a regular basis. Whether you turn on your radio or listen to podcasts or come to church every Sunday, you're hearing God's word, right? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Just change the station, go to another podcast. Rack up another one. Every single day, we're listening to two or three messages, probably. What are we doing with it? God is speaking to you. Do you sit in wonder of it? Do you toss it around in your mind? Do you ponder it, casting it around, contemplating what it means, processing it deeply and personally in your life? You ever ask the question, what's God trying to tell me in this message? When you hear something, Mary was completely astonished that God would grace her by speaking to her. The question is, are you and I that sensitive to God's grace in our life when he speaks to us through his revealed word? And we discover that whenever Mary heard God's word in the scripture about his son, she molded over in her mind. She meditated on it. And kept going over and over it in her, in her mind and in her heart, safeguarding it there so she could keep it. Luke chapter 2, verse 19, for example, says, But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. When the shepherds came and told them all about the angel visits to them in the fields as they watched over their flock. Luke chapter 2, verse 51. This is the situation when Jesus was older and they went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Every little thing that's revealed to her about Jesus, she's holding on to it. Is that our response to God's word about Jesus? Do you contemplate and meditate on it, constantly comparing it and trying to put it all together and guarding it safely in your soul? Friends, before you and I can ever humbly submit to God's divine intrusions, we must consider his word carefully and recognize how graced we are that he should speak to us through it. Amen? Another character in the Christmas narrative I just mentioned, although not so well known, also models what that looks like. In the midst of what has become known as the nunc 
Demetrius, the song of Simeon, that's in Luke chapter 2, verse 29 through 32, we observe his response to the revelation of God's word to him. Verse 25, pick it up in verse 25 of chapter 2. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. Now, Taking all those things into consideration, let me ask you, what would your reaction had been had you received a message like that? Likely one of two things, I imagine. It would either be unbelief or pride. Right? Makes sense? But Mary doesn't react with either of those things. She reacts maybe a little, with a little confusion, in need of clarification on some things like, how can a virgin be with child? She seeks to comprehend the way in which God would bring all of this about, yet Mary's ultimate reaction is one of deep consideration and undeniable trust. And that's the thing we need to hold on to there. She understands immediately that the purpose of this angelic visitation, this divine intrusion, is not for the glorification of Mary. Okay? But the focus of Gabriel's message to her is on Jesus. Oh, for you and I to react with such noble insight, right? When God interrupts your life in unexpected ways, are you quick to consider that the focus might be Jesus and it's not really about you or your circumstances? Which brings us to the second reaction here. Humbly submitting to God's unexpected intrusions deepens when we consider his astonishing ways. Consideration of God's ways. That's in verse 34 and following of Luke 1. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And then he tells her about Elizabeth conceiving a son in her old age. And I love verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. When Gabriel delivered the message to Zacharias revealing that his barren wife Elizabeth would have a son, even as a priest, what was his reaction? He doubted, right? He doubted. He needed a sign. Mary didn't doubt, but she was perplexed. 
And mystified at this incredible announcement, she didn't need a sign, but she sought some explanation. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Someone has said, if God is to accomplish his will in our sorry and sordid world, he must go to lengths that exceed anything humanly imaginable. And that's true in this case, isn't it? Gabriel encourages Mary by explaining to her not only what was going to happen, but how it was going to happen. And he showed her something that we all need to consider when God breaks into our own lives, sometimes his ways are incomprehensible to us. Incomprehensible. The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. It's a little incomprehensible, isn't it? Although we just brush right by it because we're so familiar with it. On July 25th, 1978, Louise Joy Brown was born in England. She was five pounds, 12 ounces. Relatively small, but not unusually tiny. The extraordinary thing about her, however, you know, the extraordinary thing about her was that she was the first child ever to be born having been conceived outside of the human body through in vitro fertilization. Louise Brown was the first test tube baby. Since then, many others have followed, actually over eight million more. Does that astound you? <laughs> Astounded me when I read that. Yet however amazing that was, and even as technologically advanced as we have become, Christ's conception was, is, and will be totally unique in that a male was not involved. How about that? Okay? Mary is empowered not by male sperm, but by the Holy Spirit of God. Note the rare and unique revelation of the Trinity here, by the way. The Holy Spirit will come upon her, the power of the Most High God will overshadow her, and the Son of God will be conceived within her. You see, the child to be born will not be called Joseph's son, but God's son, says the angel. And yet, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus is called the son of Mary, but never the son of Joseph. As one man aptly put it, in a rare subterfuge of history, the almighty male is relegated to the sidelines. <laughs> There's one for you. Recognize the name Sojourner Truth. She was a 19th century emancipated slave, an abolitionist and women's rights activist who became a religious visionary, aptly captured the divine offense of the incarnation when she said this. She said, that man say we can't have as much rights as a man because Christ wasn't a woman. Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with it, unquote. <laughs> Mary, a young 
peasant girl literally became the living tabernacle of God. Can you imagine? The living tabernacle of God. And yet you and I, if we know Christ, are also the same, aren't we? God lives within us. And whenever a believer humbly and obediently submits themselves to the will of God, there is where God makes his dwelling place and does the impossible in our own lives. His ways are incomprehensible. Not only are they incomprehensible, but his ways are also incomparable. Verse 36 here, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. This barren old woman becoming pregnant is no common occurrence. And yet the angel assures Mary that the miraculous power of God can reach beyond the incomprehensible and the incomparable to accomplish the absolutely impossible, humanly speaking, because his ways are never impossible. Amen? That's what verse 37 tells us, for nothing will be impossible with God. In the original language, this is a double negative, emphasizing the absolute omnipotence and sovereignty of God. Gabriel literally assures Mary that not one word of God shall lack the power to come about. Not one. Now let me ask you something today. What impossible situation are you experiencing possibly right now in your life? Do you think it poses the slightest bit of challenge to God after reading that? Mary could not understand how all of this could take place, but neither Gabriel nor God ever demanded that she understand it, only that she believe it and be willing to submit to it. And that's all that he asks of you and me. That's all. We're not expected to understand God's ways, only to believe his word and to do his will. We must make it our goal to readily respond to God's divine intrusions with the same childlike trust and abandonment that Mary had. Just like Mary said in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to to your word. What's she saying? Think Wesley, Princess Bride, <laughs> as you wish. That's what she's saying, as you wish. Which brings us to the third thing, that humbly submitting to God's unexpected intrusions results in conforming to his will conformity to God's will. That's the next stage. These are some of the most beautiful words in the entire New Testament. Verse 38. They really should grace the lips of every believer at every, every any given moment, shouldn't they? They reveal this maturity of faith and humility of soul that cannot be denied. You know, Mary changed the world by surrendering to the angel Gabriel with three words. May it be. May it be. And they are arguably the best definition of faith 
in the entire Bible. May it be. It's interesting that Gabriel issues no command here in this whole text. No command. Only an announcement. An announcement of God's unquestionable and unalterable will to which Mary responds with perfect humility and complete submission. Shouldn't this be the way that we submit to the divine will of God as he makes his way into our lives, even abruptly and unexpectedly? William Fry, retired Episcopal bishop from Colorado, tells the following story. He said, when I was a younger man, I volunteered to read to a degree student named John who was blind. One day I asked him, how did you lose your sight? John said, a chemical explosion at the age of 13. How did that make you feel? He asked. Life was over. I felt helpless. I hated God, John responded. For the first six months, I did nothing to improve my lot in life. I would eat all my meals alone in my room. One day, my father entered my room and he said to me, John, winter's coming and the storm windows need to be put up on the house. That's your job. I want those hung by the time I get back this evening or else. And then he turned and he walked out the door, slammed it as he was walking out. And John said, I got so angry. I thought, who does he think I am? I'm blind. I was so angry, I decided to do it. <laughs> so I felt my way to the garage, found the windows, located the necessary tools. I felt my way around, found the ladder, and all the while muttering under my breath, I'll show them, I'll fall, and then they'll have a blind and paralyzed son. John continued, I got the windows up, and I found out later that never at any moment was my father more than four or five feet away from my side the entire time. Now, quite contrary to this young blind man's angry reaction, Mary simply surrendered, entrusting herself and the entire humanly impossible situation to God. And you know what? God never left her side. If we can come away with one lesson of lasting value from this extraordinary woman of quiet faith, it may well be this. As one man put it, the greatest source of power and change is not economics, war, politics, gender, ideology, or social forces, but a simple believer who says to God, may it be done to me as you have said. Some 33 or so years after Mary uttered those words, a humble man prayed an agonizing and lonely prayer in a garden outside Jerusalem. As he, Jesus, struggled with the thought of bearing the sins of humanity on a cross, upon which he would give his life for you and for me, 
He cried words of remarkable similarity. This is what Jesus prayed. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, may it be done to me as you have said. Is it possible that Jesus learned that from his mom? Good thought. Some time ago, in a devotional reflection I read, mother and midwife Lois Wilson brought the miracle of the incarnation into practical reality for me with these insightful words, and we'll close. God, think about this, God with an umbilical cord. That is the incarnation. That is Christmas. Our Christmas cards are so unlike real childbirth. Mary is clothed. She's serene. She looks as if she never even broke into a sweat. The infant Jesus appears to be about six months old. There is no blood. No placenta. No umbilical cord. None of the pain of incarnation. But God really did make his way into the world by squeezing through the narrow doorway of a woman's bones. That's the birth of Christ. And as it happened, it happened as a result of a young girl in a rural Middle Eastern town being willing to say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. May it be done to me as you have said. May it be done to me according to your word, as you wish. And when we can pause in wonder of that fact, we have come close to comprehending the real meaning of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you embraced humanity to its fullest in all its pain and beauty and all its suffering and joy. Give us the courage to do the same, to celebrate Christmas by reaching deep into our own hearts and into the hearts of others, to live the life that you've given to us to its fullest. For your glory and in your name we pray. Amen.